Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us Rady Fogato and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's Happy Hour. She leaned across to me and she said, "One day, you know, you'll be doing that." Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, I went to the ABC and auditioned. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I And I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Sheridan Harbridge is a director, actor and author of plays and musical works. In addition to creating her own work, she has forged a career as an actor-writer, having been part of the workshopping cast, dramaturgy and premieres of many new Australian works. These have included the musicals Muriel's Wedding and Dream Lover, and the plays North by Northwest, The Sugar House and Jump for Jordan. She's a graduate of NIDA and has appeared on the stages of all the major Australian companies. Most recently, Sheridan has been rewarded with much acclaim for her sterling work in Prima Facie for Griffin Theatre and Stop Girl for Balvoir Theatre, two extraordinary performances that have exacted considerable creative investment from this consummate actor. She soon returns to the stage with a return season of Susie Miller's Prima Facie and later in the year she is at the helm of a new Australian musical with her direction of Dubbo Championship Wrestling to be staged at the Hayes Theatre in Sydney. She is contagiously vivacious, hugely talented, ultra insightful and terrific fun. She is Sheridan Harbridge. You said you had a, a, a super duper oh, microphone. Now, can you hear me? I can, yeah, I can hear you as clear as the bell. Can you hear me? Look at this. Yeah, I can. That's Look extraordinary. This fancy. <laughs> so, do you want me to record on this? Is this what you want? No, I'm recording now. So, it's all for Oh, great. So Easy. From, from this end. So, so, don't stress. How are you? I did my hair so I could feel at least a little bit nice. Well, we're not. At you. Although that's nice, other than looking at each other, you know, it's only the sound that's going to be recorded. Great, great. I'm sorry that it's not in person, but but you're in Melbourne. I'm not, yeah, because Mickey, my husband's down here doing Harry Potter, and so because we didn't know if it was ever coming back, I booked the whole year, like in working in Sydney, right. and then it suddenly came back, and now I'm like grabbing little bits of time with him it gives you some uh, yeah. some respite also i guess from some of the the big gigs that you've had of late oh, yes you know my illustrious career now i'm just a housewife drinking bone broth in melbourne it's really there's, good there's nothing wrong with that uh why bone broth it's just really yes the only thing that stops me from drinking alcohol from like 2 p.m every day <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a bit like a soup, is it? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever had it? I, I've heard of it, but no, I've not had it. But you, you just it's boil delicious. up some, some bacon bones, do you? Yeah, yeah. It's meat juice. It's really tasty. <laughs> meat juice. Lovely. But it's nice to see you, cuz. Cuz. I mean, because we are fish. Mm. We call each other cuz. A term coined by Shakespeare, I imagine. Cuz. Cuz. Yeah. That or the lebs. 
Hey, cuz, how you going? All right. No, I, I think Shakespeare <laughs> probably did it. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Excuse me. Using it as a term for relatives or um, anybody beyond blood relative as well. Social equals. Yes. Yeah. So, well, all of that and all of the above. <laughs> How's your sewing going? I literally, I haven't done any yet, but I just pulled out um, a big pile of fabric. I'm going to start cutting when we're done because I've been not working, but I've been in prep for um, Dubbo Championship Wrestling, which is a musical I'm directing at the end of the year. So I've been doing tapes, fielding hundreds of tapes, auditions coming in for that. Um, so I just finished like an hour ago, sort of got watching all the tapes. So now I'm going to sew and live my best life. Because you're a director also. I had Michelle Guthrie on the podcast recently who spoke about Dubbo Championship yeah, Wrestling. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That sounds very exciting. It's a great show. Um, I was initially just on as a dramaturg for it. Um, and then after working for about six months, they asked if I wanted to direct it. And by then, the writer, who's really beautiful, young and hungry, he'd really, like, tightened it into a really great script. So, yeah, that's happening. It's it's sort of like the castle in tone of, like, that really good Aussie comedy, but a musical about yeah. wrestling. <laughs> Get your hand off it, Daryl. <laughs> yeah. Straight to the pool room. <laughs> Uh, Sheridan, what makes you happy? Oh, wow. That's a hard question. Well, it's a really weird thing. Sometimes I go, do I, am I a human being outside of acting? <laughs> you know, sometimes you go, are actors actually humans? Like we spend our lives playing other humans, but I'm one of those ones who barely has a life outside of acting. So I do think about that of going, what, what is it that kind of substantiates my life beyond being on a stage? Um, and I do think the work makes me really happy. I know that's such a boring thing to say, but I mean, what a cool job. It's such a cool job. It's a hard job, but it's, it's a great life if, it, if you can make it work. Um, so making stuff makes me really happy making shows, sewing, making dresses. I just have to make stuff and that makes me happy. Are mm. you content with who you are, who Sheridan Harbridge offstage is? Sheridan Harbridge the person? Oh, look, I'd love to be a little bit skinnier, if right. I'm honest. Right. Well, that's but Sheridan the bone Harbridge broth. loves a bottle of wine. Yes, yeah, the bottle of <laughs> <laughs> uh, If only I could eat my feelings like those other actresses. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm pretty happy with with who I am. I wish I had more discipline. I'm pretty unfocused, um, and I say yes to everything, which is a huge problem. Right, um, you're, you're pretty shocking. <laughs> pretty shocking at returning texts too. <laughs> I know, but I read them and go, yeah, yeah, great, great, and I think I've replied, and then yes. three days later, I go, oh shit, I didn't reply. Yeah. But mind you, when you do reply, there's quite a volley back and forth of, of communication, which is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so thank you. It's compensation for my neglect. <laughs> hey, congratulations <laughs> on your recent triumph with Stop Girl. It was sensational. Yeah, I think I'm still in recovery from it. It was pretty big. 
I can imagine um, it's, it required a huge emotional investment in that character. Yeah, it was, and oh, it was such a um, interesting job to take on. Um, are we recording? Is this part of it? Are yeah, absolutely, on? absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you think I'm going to go through all of that again? I've I know. Enough about the bone broth. <laughs> That's why I'm rabbiting on about. No, crap. it's lovely. It's podcasting. It's authentic. It's, yes, uh, it's in the moment. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a really big job, and it was. There were so many reasons why it was wonderful and difficult. Um, a lot about being, you know, new work is just hard, and also. Sally Sara, who wrote this play, it was her first play. Um, so the very act of sort of launching um, a new writer onto the stage and sort of them learning the craft with you as you learn their show was was big and, you know, really wonderful, but just big. Um, but And also that show came with a lot of responsibility. It was a real woman's story who was a very well-known figure and a lot of people came to see that show who'd been following her for, for her career for 15 years and a lot of other journos who had gone through similar trauma like she had were there to see it as well. So it was all every night was just trying to manage um, the show, at, not just the show and your work, but also the audience and making sure you were sort of doing them a doing the service for them, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. She's a, a character that is a war correspondent, a foreign correspondent in many war zones and seen some horrific stuff. And at one point in the play, your character, Suzanne, says to a colleague, never connect, keep a distance in your head. Mm. Is that what you need to do as an actor? Because, you know, uh, we talk about prima facie also, which you're about to return to, which deals with sexual yeah. abuse. How do you protect yourself as an actor when you're dealing with, you know, severe topics like those? Gosh, I'm not, I'm not sure because you kind of have to protect yourself and not protect yourself at the same time. And oh, even so... Yeah, I'm about to return to Prima Facie and I did that two years ago for the first time. And uh, it's always, you know, you do the Q&As for that kind of show and everyone's always asking, are you okay? How are you looking after yourself? And I'm like, yeah, you're fine, fine. I'm pretty robust. Um, but maybe even two years later, I'm still, I would definitely say that show has left a kind of mark, a stain in some way that I don't even know how to um, unpack. And weirdly, doing a show about PTSD helped me, I think, let go of Prima Facie, which was a show where once again, you know, you're walking out on stage and you're about to do a show about sex assault, knowing full well that in the audience there will be some uh sex assault victims in that audience. That statistically, that is going to be true. And also I would know sometimes if there was someone in the audience and it was um, just a very um, strange responsibility. You become a, um, an advocate for people, even if you haven't sort of asked to be, but you just, you do. Um, and at the same time, you wanna, you wanna protect yourself 
but then you want to fall down the hole into the true story um, and just pray that you come out the other side intact. <laughs> so I don't know, and I think I'm still in the middle of it, so I actually don't know how much I've looked after myself. Yeah. Um, but I have no regrets about taking on the roles or how far I've gone. Sometimes, some, especially in Stop Girls, sometimes I wondered if I should go further. <laughs> but I just, you don't know, you don't know what's the point of no return. Yeah, and there certainly were some shows that I felt myself go too far and sometimes I'd be on the, literally on the floor on the stage and go, I don't know if I could stand up. And you just have to mentally go, you know, get the fuck up and just keep going. And you would just keep talking and some kind of body memory takes over. And, oh, God, and then the next day I'd go, geez, I wonder if I didn't get up, if it would be a better performance. I don't know, you know. It's, um, it's pretty sticky stuff. Are there production staff on those shows who, who are there to, to just check on you and allow you to unload? But I, I suppose that also becomes part of the ensemble's job. Um, oh, they volunteer to do it uh, and the director to yeah, yeah. guide you through it. There was really good, on both Prima Facie and Stop Girl, there was a really good duty of care. The, you know, the heads of the companies were always checking in, stage management always checking in, and always an endless offer of therapy, should I need it. <laughs> um, but I never knew I would think about the therapy and I always just don't know what I'd say. Um, you know, I felt somewhat of an idiot going thinking of walking into a therapist's office and go, oh, I, I acted that I had PTSD, but I didn't have it. You know, it's, uh, which it sounds stupid to sort of apologise for, but I'm, I think I will, but I'm not sort of ready yet to pick apart the experience. Yeah. Well, I, I liken it to, you know, in a big musical, you've got the ensemble, the dancers, the singer dancers, who will go into physiotherapy, et cetera, in order to protect their bodies to, to last the, the 12 months, two years of the run. It's a similar situation totally. emotionally with you who are invested yeah. so much into the, that trauma. Um, there's yeah. no difference that you need to go to some sort of therapist to to make sure that, that yeah. your mind, your mental health. Clean up shop, yeah. totally. Yeah. No, I should. I, I, I know I should and I will. Um, I think it's, yeah, maybe about just landing on the right time where I'm ready to unpack it. I guess I'm scared that it could unravel and I couldn't, <laughs> you know, and I wouldn't have the courage to jump back in, which I know is not true. Yeah. I'm being evasive to myself on it, that's for sure. Um, and I'm sure there's plenty of reasons why. It's interesting that you say that you you also unprotect yourself because part of an, an actor's role sometimes is experiencing that vulnerability, isn't it? Let it letting them go there to, mm. to want to, to connect, yeah. to, to hopefully, you know, create the illusion that you're going to eight shows a week. Yeah. Yeah. I think by, by Stop Girl, I'd really learnt um, with Prima Facie to feel safe in going all the way because um, once the production is sort of built, you can kind of press play. Yeah. 
you know, you don't, you don't have to spend all day marinating in the trauma that you're about to play. You turn up, the show begins, the music starts, and it's like pressing play. You just go. And if you've rehearsed, if you've spent the time in rehearsals sort of really letting yourself go there with no boundaries, then I felt safe in the show to turn up and do it and not tear myself apart, you know, the eight hours preceding the show. So it felt like a dance. Um, and that, so I felt really safe in that way. And I felt safe in Stop Girl to spend the rehearsals being an absolute broken mess, knowing that once the production's up, it's almost, an, you know, as kind of safety barriers come around it. And you get to bow at the end. And that is a ritual that's really important to go, I've just told you the story and the story's over. That and a glass of wine, you know, become really essential rituals to sort of um, shutting the show down, going home, being yourself, it's not you. Um, so the ritual of theatre makes it really comfortable in that way. It's when, the, when you become so exhausted, like, you know, just doing any show, even if it's not of such dark material, you know, the rigour of eight shows a week, it's really a lot. Um, it's when you, it's those sticky sort of week three and four when you're so tired that you start to go, I don't think I'm going to get out of this. Yeah, it got pretty tough. <laughs> do, you th do you think you will tackle Prima Facie any differently this time around? Yeah, I, I really think so. Um, because I know it, like last, doing it the first time I was so... Um, the act of learning it was so hard um, that, you know, half the sort of emotion comes from just hoping you'll make it and know it. This time I know it. So I'm really excited about going down and sort of further down the ladder. With it, I think, um, you know, it's two years ago. You just changed so much in two years, especially as a performer. I'm really excited to do it again. Yeah. Also, I think after the pandemic, I think <laughs> I give 70 less fucks. I don't know what happened. I don't get nervous anymore. It's really strange. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I just think if the pandemic put so much into perspective that um, I'm definitely more cavalier, <laughs> for better or for worse. Hmm. <laughs> Thank you for your, your candidness there because, you know, People go to the theatre and they see you in Stop Girl or Prima Facie and they leave and think, isn't she wonderful? Oh, that's amazing. Without any appreciation of what an actor goes through in order to give mm. them that dynamic performance. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or, or they sometimes go the opposite and think that you must be so broken from it. And I think it's a bit of both camps, you know, from an any day. Sometimes I'd walk out of... Sometimes I'd walk out of Prima Facie just like stoked that I'd gotten through it, you know, and sometimes you finish a show and even if it's dark material, you're so buoyant from the experience of acting. And then I'd walk into the theatre, into the foyer and see that everyone was devastated and go, oh, yeah, I better be, seem sad. <laughs> but then other times just that material can really get under your skin and it's, um, you know, and you have to, you know, find your rituals to put it away. Um yeah. Now, have you got have you got a doggy there, 
Uh, I do. Do you want me to shut her up? <laughs> oh, no. I could, we could hear her it's sort just, of She's playing. been asleep for hours and now she's just running around with a ball. That's my baby. That's my baby girl. Rabbit. Rabbit, come here. <laughs> come here. <laughs> Rabbit. Where did you Rabbit. get the, the name Rabbit for your dog? Oh, I don't know. We were probably drunk. <laughs> <laughs> She really runs like a little rabbit. She's a little ball of muscles. Yeah. Going through a crisis of identity, probably. I know. Yes. That's right. You know, you need to get a rabbit and call it dog now. Yeah, yeah. Or I want to get a cat and call it tuna. Tuna. That's my other, my other wish. You were brought up on a farm in country Victoria. Were you surrounded by a menagerie of animals? Yeah. We um, always had four dogs, four cats, in rotation goats yeah lots of pointless cattle I couldn't tell you what we farmed I asked my dad all the time what were we doing on that land with all those cows oh I don't know kid just wanted it <laughs> it's a pretty useless farm um yeah, yeah. lots of animals yeah so one of seven children are you, are you the mm -hmm. oldest the youngest where do you fit in in that group? six number six right um, which is the best place to be, I think. Yeah. Not quite the youngest, um, but still the favourite. I'm definitely my mother's favourite. I tell the others all the time. What sort of child were you? Were, were you a show-off, um, an introvert? Introvert, yeah. Were you really? Very quiet. Yeah, very, right. um, maybe, yeah, maybe not introvert's the word, but really quiet when you're in such a big family, which is just a mob like a mass of people I was very quiet in amongst that I just think I was more watchful than loud because they're big personalities they're all really big personalities um and I just I don't know sort of stayed on the outside of that and watched that menagerie of human beings <laughs> <laughs> what what did your play consist of then my play like, ah. Oh. What did you, did um, you go and climb trees? We had lots of Barbies that had, yeah, lots lots of tree climbing. We had, there was this huge pile of wood, beautiful old big tree stumps um, that was in our paddock that we drew faces on and put harnesses on and turned them into horses. And me and my sister used to have this sort of elaborate play of, riding horses through fields on these piles of woods. We also had a lot of Barbies that my brothers had smashed all the heads off. <laughs> so we just had all these really grim headless Barbies <laughs> that had been, you know, like they were like 20 years old hand-me-downs from my older sisters. Um, so, yeah, headless Barbies and, and horsies. So, so where, where, where that that image, that romantic image of riding horses through the countryside, where where did that come from? You obviously read that in a book or saw that in a film or something, did you? Yeah, probably. Like we used to read heaps, like a lot of you know the, the famous five, Nancy Drew, all that stuff, you know, all that. Um, Enid Blyton. Probably Babysitters Club. Enid Blyton. Yeah, I used to read a lot of that. And I was really into fantasy fiction, loved it. Like I would read one of those huge, fat, 
fantasy books on a weekend. I was quite obsessed with those. I had to wean myself off them because I could. I was detaching me from life because I'd finish them and cry. I'd cry for a whole day when I finished a book and had to say, you know, goodbye to these people I loved. Um, so I had to get out of it for a while. Yeah, be a real teenager. Did you enjoy growing up in the country? Yeah. Um, yeah, we had a really good life like we were very we were probably really povo (laughs) but I had a a really good mummy she sort of I never realized how much we didn't have she was really good at it you know by making our life feel very rich and it wasn't till sort of I was a teenager that I really realized how hard we had done it and how much my mum had done to make it work um yeah, but it was like pretty amazing life um, on a farm. Like it was about half an hour out of the t- main township. Um, and Tarelgan's an interesting place. Lots of, it's got really beautiful landscape. And I mean, there's a big drug problem down there. So sometimes it can be a really sad place. Um, and I definitely needed to leave. It's, there was sort of a, there can be a dark energy about it. But um, as a place to grow up as a kid, it's it's pretty stunning. Yeah, it's um, apparently there's a huge drug problem in rural Victoria. Mm, yeah, well, the work, all the work went away. And while I was there, there was a town called Morwell next to Trelgan. And it used to, I remember when I was there as in primary school, huge sort of bustling place and then I think it was the paper mill got privatized or the power station and it just ghost town you know all the shops shut down they all the shops became welfare services um and there'd be lines out the door to link it got really yeah it had a really dark turn um in the 90s that I don't think it's quite recovered from I mean it might be different there now my family's still there but I haven't spent much time there but um yeah, those country towns can feel like relics of what they they once were and can't move on. Yeah, similarly, I grew up in a, a country town and uh, it had big industry there, uh, knitting mills and tool makers, all gone now, and, and the town has become just mm. really a retirement village or a, a place of welfare. Yeah, yeah. be interesting to see post-pandemic with everyone moving out of the cities. If exactly. There's all those tree changes. New industry. People, yeah, I think they mm. might. I think they might. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as a result, do you do you prefer feel more comfortable in a um, an urban environment or rural? Because I'm very much a city yeah. mouse. City mouse now. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think it's about feeling like I'm in a in in a a, a village. You know, in the city, you feel like you're in little villages and I think I need that. And I think it's from growing out in the country and feeling so alone. I now, like, I need to be where there's activity, even if it's, um, you know, just cafes and a tram stop or something. It feels like an energy, you know. I might grow out of it, but for now, I go, when I'm in the country, I just, the quiet can terrify me. So what about theatre growing up? What what sort of exposure did you have in Tarelgan? Was there a, a local community group or professional? It was, yeah. 
Um, no professional stuff coming through. Um, I hate admitting this, but it's a pretty funny story. The first time going to a play, um, our high school must have taken us to um, what I now realise must have been Bell Shakespeare Company, a production of Romeo and Juliet. Um, and we were just so bored that we turned, we made paper planes out of our programs and we're throwing them towards the stage. Like this pains me to go, now I realise I know those people. And <laughs> um, I've even looked up the production and seen who the cast were and just have died with horror for them. Because um, I've done those school shows, you know, they are, they're punishing work. Um but there was a, it wasn't really to high school, really my love of performing definitely started with Rocker Stedford. And people mock it, people mock the eight minutes of glory, but I got my bug from, from Rocker Stedford, definitely. <laughs> we had a great um, teacher who just met every, like life was Rocker Stedford. Um, and from there it led to like the amateur, local amateur musicals. Um, but I was still very much a writer. I always just thought I would write. Um, and I wrote um, my year 10 drama teacher let me write the school play um, incredibly. And that really was the beginning of it as a kind of serious act where, you know, failure was not an option. Um, yeah, so really I had these pretty incredible high school teachers that kind of made, saw something and took it very seriously with me and it makes the world a difference when someone in, takes you on like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's great to have those champions, isn't it, that just um, can, well, teachers especially can recognise some spark or, or interest in whatever the field is, whether it be sport or the arts or painting mm -hmm. or, or whatever. Um, but yeah. to have that 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 support and buoyancy is um, fantastic. fantastic. Yeah, and consequently, I really I teach a lot as well. And if I see anyone with this little bit of juju that you go, oh, oh, that's interesting, I give them absolute. You know, either really let them know that, to put a little kernel in their heart to go, you can do this or sort of give myself to them as a, a mentor in some way because it's just like how do you start it's such a vast and strange career to enter if you don't especially if you don't get into one of the drama schools which you know many great actors don't um yeah I do try and collect young actors um to make sure there's good people always always up and coming so NIDA and acting when does that come onto your um, frontier? I think the the drive to act definitely came from my I had friends who were really into it more than I was. And I started, sort of went along for the ride in high school. Um, and then they, they auditioned for BAPA, that Ballarat Academy of Performing Arts, which is Fed Uni now. Um, and I went, oh, well, I better audition too and did and got in. So me and my two best mates from high school, who were both still in the biz, um, we, we all went to Ballarat together to do music theatre. And while I was at BAPA, I started travelling up to Melbourne and seeing the VCA theatre shows. 
and they blew my mind. They were really good, you know, um, really interesting stuff like I saw a production of The Balcony. Um, George you know, spent Yeah, in a car park in Carlton, you know, we all, it was the whole car park was empty, this massive car park, a whole floor had been emptied. Um, maybe the middle floor of like a, a four kind of floor car park with this little theater set in the middle of it. And that we just had cushions to sit on in the freezing cold. Um, and the actors rode bikes, you know, while doing their scenes throughout the whole thing. And my little mind was just going, what, what? this is acting? Um, so because I was getting that sort of really um, more sophisticated influence in that way, by the end of second year of music theatre at BAPA, I was like, this isn't, this isn't the shit, you know, this is, this is the lightweight stuff. So at the end, and I just sort of went, I'm never going to be in a musical, you know, not the stuff we were training for, which is like the stuff that comes to Australia. So dance kind of heavy. And I was, you know, my years in rock, it said for the, you know, not trained me to be a real chorus girl. Um, <laughs> um, so at the end of second year auditioned for all the drama schools and like, couldn't believe it got into NIDA. Like I just had no expectation of doing so. Um, and my audition was so ridiculous. I had no idea what I was doing. But at the time, I had this little black pixie haircut. And I was doing my, at NIDA, you do two monologues for the first round, and then you get into the afternoon sort of second round where you do a third monologue. And I hadn't even prepared one because I thought, there's no way I'm getting it. Um, and I sat there on my chair, like in full pit sweat, and I just felt, you know, had another monologue on the floor in front of me. And I was just saying a line and looking up, saying a line and looking up. It was just a disaster, but didn't want to say. I'd seen other people before me saying they weren't prepared and they just got, you know, their, like, and they shut down their neck. So I was like, I'm going to pretend this is what I'm planning to do. And then Tony Knight, beautiful Tony Knight, was like, darling, this is terrible. What are you doing? I was like, uh, that's, I don't know. It's like, you were really interesting before, but now you're really boring. And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, you look like Liza Minnelli. Can you do Liza Minnelli? And I literally just did a monologue I knew as Liza Minnelli and went all the way. Like I think I ended up on the, ta on the audition table, like on the panel's table, just like acting for my fucking life and got through. Like <laughs> it was just this really hammy kind of... <laughs> Thing. And then once I got into the, the actual callbacks, like a couple of weeks later, um, I, I picked this monologue, which just so naive and so out of my depth, um, which was from, I think it's called The Love of the Nightingale by Timberlake Wurdenbecker. And it's based on a Greek story where this girl gets raped by her sister's husband. And when she confronts him, he cuts out her tongue. I'm 19. I've never done monologues. Like I've never been in a play and I'm there going, oh, doing this terrible acting. And this time it wasn't Tony Knight. It was the very unforgiving Kevin Jackson. And he just screamed at me for 40 minutes, like saying I had no depth, had all this kind of thing just to like feel it. And I was just ended up on the floor sort of 
trying to like literally laying on the floor trying to do this monologue and I didn't get there like it was no I still didn't do a good job but I think the very act of trying to made me look like a very good student um but I was just yeah ruined and then later on I'll never forget it I was sitting next to um (laughs) Kevin being a reader for someone else's monologue um so you know people do the monologue to you and I could see Kevin's paperwork and mine I could see mine and there'd been a bit of coffee spilt on it no respect and he had written as his notes for me it was something like mesmerizing charismatic no depth terrible actor (laughs) 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 and I'm there trying to act with this other person with one eye going oh god I am never gonna make it um but then got in (laughs) but charisma does it all oh bloody hell literally my haircut got me in my Liza Minnelli pixie cut it's extraordinary isn't it, those happy accidents which which open doors for you yeah if, if you didn't have that haircut maybe you wouldn't have had the opportunity to show take yeah direction. a really bad Liza Minnelli impersonation yeah 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 yeah, Great. yeah. who knows I yeah. saw you um at NIDA in Shopping and Fucking by Mark oh, Rabinell gosh so I what you that you saw that yeah was that first second or third year that was my graduate show in third year. Right. But, and Lee Lewis directed it, who directed me in Prima Facie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. That was a, another full-on show. Yeah. Yeah. What do your folks think of these shows when they come and see them, when, with their daughter sort of <sighs> being in these compromising well, positions? Or... Yeah, that one was bad. That one was particularly bad because they'd never seen theatre. Like, they'd seen musicals but they'd never seen theatre and I was really acutely aware of that. Um, so I tried, and this is, you know, for the listeners at home, another show that's got drug use, sex assaults. I think someone has a drill drilled into their skull. Like it's really, it was from that, you know, the dark plays coming out of London in the 90s. Um and I tried to get them to read. First of all, I was like, don't come. You don't need to come. And they're no, 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 darling, it's a grad, new graduate show. I, like, oh, okay, okay, okay. I sent them the script. I tried to get them to read it. They didn't. Um, also in that show, within the first 10 minutes, I'm topless, tits out, full tits out. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I had told my dad, when you hear this line, shut your eyes. <laughs> And my d- and dad didn't just shut his eyes. He went, oh, and made this noise that he was having a stroke and, like, got into, like, the brace position, like, on a plane. And then, and I just sort of went, oh, like, took, you know, it was an all-body shudder. It was a very small theatre for him to do that. So I was like, oh, okay, there's dad. Um, but then I forgot in the final 10 minutes of the show, footage of my tits went on to 10 TVs behind me. I just <laughs> and so that happened in the climax of the show and you know it's third year I'm acting for my life I'm acting for an you know to get an agent and dad once again <laughs> goes down like oh god um and then my poor mum who's a social worker and a counsellor she just couldn't remove you know the actor from the role like it had happened to me and so in the, she, in the, she's in the foyer trying to counsel me. I'm just like, it's fine, mum, it's fine. 
So yeah, it's a lot for them. Um, and they both came to prima facie and it was also, you know, pretty difficult for them. But um, now I just, you know, try and bring them to Muriel's wedding, bring them to the comedies, bit of a song and dance. <laughs> well, your career has been extraordinary in that you have demonstrated terrific versatility. You've appeared in comedies, in, in heavy dramas, in musical theatre, uh, established musicals and new musicals. Um, yeah. It, it must be terrific to be so versatile and so employable. Yeah, I feel like the luckiest girl in the world, like to have sort of fallen into that. The commonality between them all is they're largely all new. Like I've, I've only ever done new plays, which is crazy. I've never done a play that exists. I've never been able to learn my lines before rehearsals. I would do anything to do a little check off where I can, you know, spend six months <laughs> learning my lines. It's always, you can't learn it because it's not fully edited. You start learning it at the end of week one, you know, when you've done all the table work. Um, and a lot of new musicals as well. Though the established musicals I've gotten to do, I got, I, I think it was uh, Fiddler on the Roof and My Fair Lady, which is such treats to do those beautifully sort of well-made um, musicals. But um, I know I, I, I feel so lucky to be able to traverse so many genres and scale, and the scale of these shows is so different. Well, recognised as, as specialising in, in creating new work, you must must be known as the go-to girl to get on board for a workshop or from the ground floor for a new show. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you've obviously demonstrated skill in your contributions at rehearsal and that probably stems from your your writing ability. I think so. I reckon that's it, like to have a good dramaturgical brain. Um, I remember when I got into when I got into NIDA and I went to tell my the head of Kim Durbin, who was the um, head of the music theatre course at Ballarat that I'd gotten in and I was leaving. <laughs> and she said to me, and it was really, really good advice. She said, you act like a director your mind's always on the outside of the scene, looking in, trying to solve it. And you need to learn how to just be the actor. And it was so, it was such a um, succinct way to put it. And I, and I suddenly understood why um, I felt like as an actor at that time and during my time at NIDA as well, that I was always on the edge of a cliff and I didn't know how to fall off. And I realised it was because I was very cerebral and I had that sort of director's or writer's eye view in. Um, and I tried to, I spent my three years at night of trying to fall off that cliff, you know, and not be on the outside. But it's that variability um, that has, I think, given me this career to be really good at new work, really good at helping a writer find their characters and their scenes and helping a director solve you know, which often in Australian work, it's not developed enough by the time we start rehearsals. There's just not the money to workshop. There's not the money to do out-of-town tryouts. Um, so you've got to really work fast and hard to make these shows work. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's been a um, learning how to turn it off and on. That outside brain is, has been the key. Sheridan, tell me who Marie Duplessis is. Oh, well, yes. She is the um, 
there she was a renowned courtesan um in paris around i think her life you know her her the peak of her fame was around 1840s sort of um belle epoque france she is the woman that the lady of the camellias is based on um i think she's in that incarnation as oh i forget now marie gautier um La Traviata is her story and Moulin Rouge is her story. Um, and she was my muse for the first musical I wrote, Songs for the Fallen. That is her. She was uh, the Diana of her time, apparently, the princess of the yes, people. Yes, just, yeah, such a cool lady. And I stand by all those, um, she's not done, the reason why I wanted to write about her was um, Alexander Dumas Jr. who wrote The Lady of the Camellias and he had been her lover. I don't think he did her justice. <laughs> if you go into her real story, the tenacity and the fury and the will to live that that woman had has not was not encapsulated by his interpretation of her. So consequently, neither in La Traviata or Moulin Rouge. Um, so I really had a, a hunger to really write while she was, why she became the Diana of her time and why she was so ferocious and interesting. Yeah. Well, the, the show was huge for you and you enjoyed quite an extensive tour around Australia, yeah. but also you took it to the States. Uh, where it was received rapturously. I mean, the New York Times, a review, Harbridge's dazzling, bewitching, sophisticated fun. I just sat there smiling all the time. That's Annie Gates. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, New York was amazing. They loved it over there. Um, and it was really interesting um, taking the show there because you know, it was a real mishmash of genres. It was a bit music theatre, it was a bit cabaret, it was a bit stand-up. Um, and we very deliberately mishmashed all those um, uh, incarnations I was talking about, Moulin Rouge, Lady of the Camellias, La Traviata. We pushed it all in to make this show where sometimes we went to handheld mic to do the numbers. Um, and when we took that to New York, they just couldn't believe or understand how supposedly clever we'd been with the genre sort of melding. And that astounded me because in Australia, we just do anything to make shit work. So our shows do become these hybrids. We just work with these tiny budgets. And, you know, the reason we're on handheld mics is we couldn't afford good lapels to make a sound any good. You know, all these reasons. Um, they're not used to their music theatre being so hybrid, where to us it was just like making it work, making it work. I was a genius over there. They bloody loved me. <laughs> <laughs> True. We, see your, we no. see your name and face a lot, and it would be easy to assume that you're in work all of the time, but I'm sure there are lean times when you're not in work and gigs that you audition for that you don't get. How does an actor handle that rejection? It is, I reckon, I had some really good advice from the wonderful Felix Williamson who taught um, my year screen acting at NIDA. He 
said, <laughs> as soon as you walk out of the audition room, put the script in the bin, screw it up, put it in the bin, it's over. And, of course, I think for the, you know, up at the probably first eight years of my career, um, it's all very well to do that. Everything still hurt. But you just get better and better and better at it. And now I give myself boundaries. I throw the script in the bin. I'm allowed to sulk for 24 hours. I let myself be disgusting and sulky and petulant for 24 hours and then it's over. And I, I, it might, it'll appear in my mind, but I will never speak it out loud again. <laughs> and I think that's, to me, surviving the failure is the only reason why anyone's still acting in their 30s. I've seen brilliant actors who, who aren't working today who walked away because they were just no good at the failure. Um, so I think finding a way to manage it is the only way to have a good time and not let it actually affect the work you do get because it can it can really throw people off course it can make them very edgy and you see it then in the room when they do get a job um yeah you just gotta take it you just gotta take it in the face have a drink and move on next <laughs> next yeah this is a question that I ask every actor that I talk to. Do you read reviews and do you, do you place much faith in them? I wish I didn't read them, but, you know, I, and every show I do, I go, I'm not reading them this time. And I tell everyone, don't, bring, don't tell me I'm not reading them. And then at 2 a.m. I'll flick through Twitter and I'll see them and I always wish I hadn't. Um. But I don't play, even though I read them, I don't place sort of an importance on them because they're always so varied, you know. And one will re review will say exactly what you hoped the show would be or exactly what you're trying to achieve. And the next one will completely not get it and it's not for them. But I just go, well, I didn't write the show for you. I didn't perform for your tastes. It's not for you and that's fine. It's for someone else. Do you have a, a, a method that you use regularly to learn lines? Oh, well, I have to do it when I'm walking. I don't know why that's happened. I have to walk. I can't sit still and learn lines. So I'll take my dog and sometimes a little traveller glass of Pinot Noir in a Frank Green coffee cup. No bone broth? <laughs> No bone broth. Oh, fuck the bone broth. Um, uh, and I do it while I'm walking. Uh, yeah, I, it's, I don't know, for some reason um, not being static helps me pull the images out so I can learn it through the imagery while I'm walking. So have you recorded the, yeah. the script into, uh, you know, your voice memo on the phone? Yeah. Or you have, I, right? Yeah. Both. So I'll use either a, um, an app called Line Learner, which is a great app, um, or I'll just take a picture of the script on my phone and just be muttering to myself like a crazy person um, <laughs> on the street, looking like yeah, looking like a homeless person. Do you get nervous? And if so, when do you get nervous? I sort of alluded to it before. Things have changed pre and post pandemic. Um, I post pandemic 
very nervous, very nervous performer, but it will hit me in that final five minutes, which is sort of terrible because then you've sort of got, you do, you know, 70 wheeze and because I'm always in like spanks, really tight spanks, it's always a debacle. Um, yeah, very nervous in that final five minutes. Um, but post-pandemic, I don't know why something's changed. Is it is it getting older, do you think? Maybe, yeah. I don't feel like I've got anything to lose anymore. Like, you, you know, the fear of failure is strong. I think that that makes, is a real big motor and engine of me as an artist is, you know, always trying not to fail. Um, but I think maybe post-pandemic or perhaps it is just, you know, mid-30s, um, you know, older and wiser, you go, I might fail tonight and I've got tomorrow to, to fix it. And that's become a healthier thing to go, I actually can't win every night. Eight shows a week, I cannot win. And I feel okay about that now. It used to be horrific. But now I can, I now I know statistically from all the shows I've done, you have three great wins in an eight show week. Um, you have two absolute pathetic failures and a couple of mid shows. <laughs> and just whatever happens, I've got another shot. I've always got another chance to f fly close to the sun again. Um, and that's really, yeah, that's changed my nervousness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you've got, you, you've got an audition for a musical coming up. Uh, what is your go-to song for auditions at musicals? Do you have a song you do all the time? This is really bad, Peter, but I haven't auditioned in years. Oh, really? That's okay. That's okay. And that's, and that's fabulous. Fuck them. And if they want me to audition, I go, who do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, true too. When, when you're an, an established performer with terrific runs on the board, um, you would imagine yeah. that directors or the people casting will have seen your work somewhere on the line. They know you're reliable. Um, they've spoken to other people. So why, they should. Why do you need to come in and sing, I'm still here? I know. I don't know. even know what I'd do. And I bet I, I was never good at auditioning. I bet I'd just be even worse than I used to be. I get the giggles. I go really weird. Um. Well, it's such a it's such a, a, a false uh, experience, isn't it? Environment, isn't it? It's so unusual the audition process. Oh, you're up there yeah. in front of this table of people just watching, yeah. and you're supposed to just turn it on. They're so strange. And now I'm on the other side of the table a lot more with um, uh, casting and directing, and it just you see people come in and you go, how can I make this? Because you know they're not going to do the, they're not going to be the, the best artists that they are. They're, you know, dears in the spotlight. Um, so I'm always trying to make the room as comfortable as possible. Um, but they're have, just horrific. Do you have any advice for auditionees going into an audition room? Um. Yeah, I would say, I reckon, and I don't know why I, I do it now for a lot of people and now I don't know why I didn't do it. Um, 
and I will do it if I have to audition. But I think get an acting coach, do the whole process. If the job means a lot to you, get an acting coach, get someone to put you through the paces of the potential of the scene and the song. Um, I think it makes a big difference. It's like having a workout, you know, before you go in. And then once you're in, just listen. Just always, no matter how you feel, listen. Just make sure you're taking on that direction 100%. That's the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing to do is listen when you're so nervous. Yeah, true, true. Um, mm. You're about to head back into Prima Facie. It's a one-woman show. What is it like doing a one-woman show where there's really just you and the stage manager? Uh, is it a lonely experience? I love myself, Peter. I love myself. <laughs> <laughs> I love acting with me. Uh, I'm a really generous actor to myself. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I had a really good time. I know, I know a lot of people that that is not their bag. They wouldn't want to be alone up there. Um, I don't mind it because I've come through, you know, I've done a lot of cabaret, um, which is a similar experience of just handling a room on your own and nowhere to hide. Um, I really like it. Um, I had, a, you know, I had a very good time on Prima Facie last time and, you know, it's, uh, Usually with an actor, you know, doing scenes with another actor, you're trying to hit the marks together. And that's a good game, especially if you like each other. You know, you're trying to make it work together. And that's the game over your six-week season. But when you're on your own, it's with the audience. Um, you're trying to hit it with the audience. And it's, it's, um, it's harder, but it's, it's, it's good fun. You can get into a terrible inner monologue, which is that's when it gets hard when you know if you just have a bad scene it's not like you can go off stage and reset and go no it's all right we're going to win them back in the next scene I would definitely with Prima Facie if I thought the show was going bad just the inner monologue of they hate you they hate you <laughs> it's really hard to put that beast away especially if you've got you know 90 minutes to go um but you know like we're saying you know you you if you have a bad show, you've got the next night and the next night and the next night to reclaim your dignity. Um, but with Prima Facie, I had a really great stage manager who acted very much like an associate director as well. So they'd come down before the show each night to talk about the show the night before and go, hey, I loved it when you went there with the scene. I preferred it when you used to do it that way. So there was always a dialogue. Um, keeping it on track and that was really um invaluable so yeah no I'm looking I'm looking forward to it yeah, yeah. and I'm looking forward to seeing it I can't wait did you see it last time I didn't I couldn't get a ticket because you were, yeah, you were at yeah. the Griffin weren't you and you sold out very quickly mm. uh so yeah. you're playing the Seymour Centre this time aren't you that's right yeah, yeah. And, and what then, are the dates um, oh gosh Actually, what month? It's, Just a uh, month? Do you know a the month? Last week of, the last week of June to the middle of July. Excellent. And then we go to Queensland Theatre Company. And then um, we circle the arsehole of Melbourne and do Albury and Geelong. Um, it was supposed to do the Malt House pre-pandemic, um, but all of that sort of fallen apart. So it's not going to do Melbourne, which is such a shame because the show 
<laughs> unfortunately, has become even more relevant this year uh, than yeah. it was two years ago mm. with everything that's happened in Parliament. Um, and uh, Lee Lewis, the director, said in a Q&A once, and I'll never forget it, she said, I can't wait for this show to be irrelevant, for this story to be old-fashioned, which is about um, a woman uh, going into the justice system with a sex assault case, which is impossible to win. Like it's the statistically a horrific scenario for a woman to go to court with um, against their sex offender. So, yeah, it's a shame that it's not doing Melbourne, but hopefully it will in some fashion. Yeah, at some time, fingers crossed. Gee, it's been good to chew the fat with you over this, this hour <laughs> about acting and, and Sheridan and... Um, all things good. Yes, showbiz. Showbiz. <laughs> Did we cover everything? But definitely, I think so. I think so. Um, but I will say after my, my year of trauma plays, I'm dying to sing again. <laughs> Mama wants to do a musical now. It'd be nice. After all that, all the dark stuff has made me really need to sing. So I've got to find a way to. Well, I see Michael Castle has just announced Mary Poppins. You think you can see yourself at Cherry Tree Lane or. Has he? That's yeah, have you heard that? Cool yes. Show. No, it's all over social I media know. today. So. Uh, oh. Yes, or a Mrs. Banks or a, a bird lady. Yes. Or, or one of the, you know, the bird lady. That is, that's my wheelhouse. <laughs> Or, um, or, or let's let's have really adventurous casting and, and Bert the Chimney Sweep. Oh yeah, got a good Cockney accent. Go for it. Oh, go on. Give, give me a, give me a, give me a bit of it now, love. <laughs> no, I want a good chance of getting the role. <laughs> All right. So you'll go and you'll go and rehearse. Get yourself. I, I need a couple of weeks to prepare. And get yourself an acting coach. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Follow your own advice. Uh, <laughs> darling, thank you so much. Have fun in Melbourne and all the very best with Prima Facie. Thank you, darling. See you then. Sheridan is devastating, incredible and utterly brilliant in Susie Miller's Prima Facie. You won't want to miss this extraordinary production accompanied by an extraordinary performance and all directed by Lee Lewis. It plays at the Seymour Centre from June 23 to July 10, bookings through the Seymour Centre in Sydney. And of course, followed by a trip up to Brisbane and the Queensland Theatre Company, and also a bit of a tour, and other dates can be found online. You've been listening to Stages with Peter Ayers. Take a look at the back catalogue of conversations at our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. Thanks for joining us in this episode. I'll catch you next time.